0: Hey, rock sliders! It's Robbie Denning. Late March here. I'm back on the podcast. Everybody's worried about the winter, and I thought let's go right into the heart of the beast here and get a biologist on the podcast and uh, just hear what it's like. Um, kind of the things they're thinking about and uh, decisions behind the scenes that go on in making uh, making wildlife great in all across the West, but specifically here. I have Brandon Diamond. He is the Area Wildlife Manager in Gunnison, Colorado. He's been there since 2021. My math says that's about 22 years of service, so I really like to have these guys on the podcast. I have followed Brandon just in the news over the years. He's been a great source for information on Colorado deer hunting, uh specifically the Gunnison. That's how I've always uh, tracked him. Maybe he's been other places there too. We'll we'll get into that as we go, but I'm really glad to have him on the podcast. And remember, rock sliders you know, these guys are busy. This isn't their, their main job. They're not the information officer typically for the department. So they're, they're being generous coming onto the podcast and answering our questions. And, you know, frankly, a lot of times they don't know what they're getting into when they say yes. So I hope you guys will give them a warm welcome. Open your ears. As I've said in other podcasts, I, I like to get the biology out of the coffee shops and uh, let's let's get it up here where we can talk about the science and um, talk to the guys that are really making these decisions. And uh, it'll make all of us better hunter. So Brandon Diamond, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you Robbie. Yeah, I really appreciate the invite.
0: Look forward to our, our conversations. You bad and you you live in Gunnison too, don't you? I do. Yep. How's the weather down there?
1: Uh, well, um like a lot of places in the west this year, we're having a pretty decent winter. We're certainly above average. Uh, but not nearly the the situation that some of the country to the north is in, um, you know, and hopefully as we get into April here with some 40 degree weather, we'll, we'll start breaking up the landscape a little bit and and we'll be okay.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, this topic is really heated up. You know, we run a forum on Rockslide. So, you know, every day I, I'm kind of seeing what people are talking about and, you know, it seems like every winter, just about somewhere in the West, there's a concern, but it really seems... Uh, pretty broad this winter. It reminds me a little bit of 92, 93, although we didn't have the exceptional drought uh, prior to this winter that we did then. And, um, you know, it was kind of west-wide. You know, everybody in Colorado was getting it, and, you know, Southern Utah was getting it, Nevada was getting it, Mon- uh, Montana was getting it. And it's not not as bad this year, it seems, but it's, it's definitely on everybody's mind. So what I wanted to tell our listeners here was, you and I had I talked a little bit this week to get prepared for this, and I, I wanted to Kind of frame the conversation before I ask you these questions, so that the the listeners, you know, know what know what we're uh, coaching from here. And I've hunted Colorado since the early nineties; it's one of my favorite states. So I've I've followed your management, you know, prior to the big change in ninety nine, and then you know the, the the smaller changes that have occurred since then. So I'll just give them a background here. Um, Colorado went limited licenses for mule deer in nineteen ninety nine, and from a buck hunter's viewpoint we were all pretty happy while license numbers have since been adjusted within the archery muzzleloader in the second through fourth rifle seasons, the management has stayed roughly the same since 99. And in 99, they went all limited licenses. Uh, that, that was a big change. Colorado was a big OTC state then for deer. Uh, and I mean, there it was not received well with, with some groups, but it was the direction that the division decided to go. And, um, They stayed with that management here roughly for the last 20 years, adjusting license numbers up and down, but still staying with the limited license structure. And then beginning in 2021 to coincide with elk management and address CWD concerns, dates for the archery and the rifle seasons were shifted later. One little caveat I threw in there, even though that plan did not start until 2021 Ah, uh, the twenty twenty season was shifted later, too. I can't really remember why, but it added a couple of days on the end. And so it didn't even close till the thirteenth of November. And having hunted Colorado for twenty years, man, it felt like Christmas, you know, you got to hunt yeah, you know, clear to the thirteenth. I think prior to that, the latest I ever hunted was the eleventh. And um so if if we count that later season, and then we're, we're into this three seasons now, twenty 2020 twenty through twenty twenty one excuse me, 2022 and a variety of weather, um, with those date shifts, you know, 2020 was, you know, decent weather. I'm, you know, we, we had snow, but it wasn't big, big storms, you you know, 2021, warm and dry my goodness it was like t-shirt weather and then 2022 we got it early and and it stuck around clear into the third and fourth seasons and um so with that in mind that's what i wanted to talk to brandon about and and i've got some questions here uh based on that um so so was that pretty accurate did i frame that right brandon was that your kind of memory of everything that we've done the last 20 years
1: For the most part, yeah. Robbie, you you nailed it. I mean, in 1999, that was a huge shift in the way that the Division of Wildlife at the time did business uh, by going totally limited for mule deer, and there were reasons for that at the time. Um, Our populations were generally in a state of decline, and even then, uh, there was some desire for, you know, higher buck to doe ratios and a little bit more uh, big buck hunting opportunity, and So it was certainly a big change. And I grew up in Colorado um, and hunted when I was a younger man. And, um, you know, remember the days of over-the-counter licenses. So it was a big shift and a big transition. And um, here we are all these years later. And you were hitting on the big game season structure, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about uh, throughout the podcast. But, um, you know, every five years, uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife uh, goes through a big game season structure planning effort that results in setting the the next five-year season dates and other sideboards on our management. And so the, the the season structure that we're in now did actually start in 2020. So it'll go from 2020 through 2024. Okay. And, then the next season, and then the next season structure will kick off in 25 and go through 29. So we're actually in the process now of just kicking off our planning efforts and discussions for the next season structure even though we have two more years to go. So
0: okay, so in 2020 when I said that 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 it just went 2 days later. That actually still was the beginning of this new 5 year uh, season structure, but with Colorado always opening on a on a Saturday for uh second and third season, that just happened to shift early. And then in 2021, it went late because we closed on the 13th in 2020 and we opened on the 13th in 2021.
1: Right. And so that's right. The first year of the season structure was not hugely different from the previous years. And then those calendar dates jumped and got significantly later. And depending on where you work uh, in Western Colorado, especially, there was a lot of discussion about um, the big game season structure. and. Um, some folks were disappointed and concerned about those later season dates, uh, but for every one of those folks, there was probably another hunter that was looking at how many preference points they had and planning their next hunt around yeah. those later season dates.
0: <laughs> yep, <Yeah. laughs> you nailed it. It was, yeah, it was, it was, um, uh, it was pretty divisive, and there was there was proponents on both sides. Um, and so, still, yeah. to be. Well, and Robbie, to be honest,
1: you know, those conversations continue even now, you know, as we plan for the next season structure, those same conversations are going to continue
0: yep, and that's one of the reasons further down on the outline there, I've got those questions in there because you know I hear that from guys, Some of them love it, some of them hate it and and again, that's kind of why I like to lean on the science is, okay, well, you know, we're trying this now. do we do can we draw any conclusions from it? Um, the sky's not always falling is what I've learned. so anyways, um the so the I don't know exactly what the elk management concerns were that that tied into shifting those dates, but have those elk management con- concerns been addressed? with this new five-year plan that we're basically halfway through right now or a little over?
1: Well, um, you know, again, some of these conversations get down to more of a local, a local lens. The, you know, the season structure, when you actually start talking about how long the seasons are, how many seasons we offer and what the breaks look like between the seasons, you can kind of discuss all of those various things and the pros and cons, uh, related to elk management or mule deer management. Um, you know, these, these season dates, um, as they lay now, they're later in the calendar year. So obviously that increases the potential for snow and weather. And, you know, you would, you would expect that with snow and weather would come, you know, expedited elk movements across the landscape to places where they may potentially be more vulnerable to hunters, um, getting down towards winter ranges. Um, those longer breaks between the seasons, Mm -hmm. you know, after all these years, we've talked about this a lot, but I am convinced that they do make a difference in terms of animal distribution between seasons. You know, I think that especially with these longer breaks, there is the potential for elk to let their guard down to some degree and become more vulnerable during those opening few days of the of the next season mm-hmm. and so these these season dates as they lay now i would describe them as you know elk management season dates that put the odds in the hunter's favor to be successful and so if you're measuring the success uh, on that front i think that we've been successful you know in my in the areas where I manage, um, you know, we definitely have had some pretty successful elk hunting seasons over the past few years. And I expect that will continue, uh, just based on those later season dates and increased elk vulnerability. So that's good for the hunters. Um, you know, that have tags in their pockets and that are out there on the landscape. And that's a good thing. Uh, it helps us to expedite elk management in situations where we may be above population objectives. Um, You know, on the flip side of the coin, um, you know, in places where we're at our elk management objectives or below them, uh, if our success rates continue, continue to increase, that might result over time in a little bit less hunting opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's one of, that's one of my concerns. And of course we watch that annually and we adjust licenses accordingly, um, so yeah there's there's certainly pros and cons uh to how these season dates fall from a hunter's perspective as well as a manager's perspective
0: gotcha and it and and it, is it fair to say then for these concerns with the elk management we were trying to increase elk harvest because we were over objective on average throughout the state
1: uh it depends on where you're at you know I would say the northwest part of the state and of course this year has, has been pretty tough on them um But in general, the northwest part of the state has more productivity uh, in their elk herds than the southwest part of the state does. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is probably related to climate and, um, you know, drought cycles we've been in and available habitats and winter ranges and things like that. But um, if if managers need to reduce elk populations, this season structure definitely accommodates that and sets the stage for success on that front.
0: Yep, and then um, and and then along with that, because we've shifted it later, that that's also shifted the the deer seasons later, and you know, kind of the guys I run with, and you know, the big buck crowd. You know, they're again, it's really polarizing. Some were pretty happy and ready to spend their points, others were were, were thinking the sky was falling. So, do we have any data yet that tells us number wise? Uh, and and you know, this, I realize you know I'm kind of asking you about all, all of Colorado and you're just in Gunnison so if you just need to focus on a couple of units that's fine too but um is deer harvest buck harvest specifically has it increased in the last 3 years over say the previous 3
1: um you know so in the areas I don't I don't have the statewide success rates off the top of my head um but in in the areas that I manage uh, certainly we've We've been sustaining a really high success rate even prior to this season structure. You know, our hunters, if you want to take a deer home, you certainly can do that, right? And so success rates tend to be high in a lot of the Southwest region and our different deer game management units. Um, what this season structure, the conversations that have sort of elevated based on this recent season structure is more how has harvest impacted mature buck? Prevalence um, in that segment of our population, and you know, I could talk about that all day long on a lot of different fronts and what's influencing that. Um, but this this season structure certainly increases the potential for increased vulnerability of mature bucks. And you know, again, if you have a tag in your pocket and this is your once every decade or once in a lifetime hunt, that's not a bad thing at all. Um, you know, uh, but different people have different opinions on that. And so that's that's been more of the conversation because I and, and maybe I should back up just a little bit. I'm not sure how familiar, Robbie, you are with how Colorado manages mule deer. Uh, you probably are some. Uh, this will just be uh, old hat to you. But in Colorado, our herd management plans, they include two uh, important objectives. One is the overall population objective and one is that sex ratio objective. So the number of bucks per hundred does. And, you know, that's what we're managing to every year is the objectives laid out in those herd management plans. So we're never our intent is to never overshoot that and go below that. Um, So then the question becomes, you know, if you have 40 bucks per hundred does in your population, how many of those are mature bucks? How many of those are yearling bucks? Mm -hmm. How many of those are in between? And those are more of the conversations that we have with folks. Um, in relation to these season structures. And when this season structure was implemented, um, immediately that triggered a lot of conversations in my local communities. And the reality is, you know, the expectation is that our, our the buck segment of our population should get younger over time mm-hmm. uh, because of that increased vulnerability in buck harvest. And that just comes with the season structure um, and within the sideboards that we have to manage our, our deer herds you know, that that may be how the, the chips fall over time. Um, and, you know, at the end of the fi- at the end of this season structure, we can sit down and look at how those metrics have changed over the previous five years and have a little bit more informed conversations on it uh, and, and know more what to expect moving forward. If, say, a, a similar season structure is adopted for the next go round.
0: Okay. So yeah, you got real specific on that and that's great. So when I, when I said deer success, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, percent harvest, you're right. It is pretty high in Colorado, kind of pretty much the highest in the West. And, uh, but, but sex ratios, that's probably really what my crowd's the most interested in. Do we have enough data yet to say in the last three years, the buck to doe ratio has decreased with hunting these deer later?
1: Well, in, in, in most of my, uh, area, um, you know, we're actually at or slightly above our sex ratio objectives still, mostly because our deer herds have been performing well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, to, to come full circle on this, when we are above our sex ratio objectives um, that are that are codified in our herd management plans, our mandate each year as managers is to issue a number of licenses that achieves those objectives. So if we're over our sex ratio objectives, we have some flexibility to increase licenses. Mm-hmm. If we're stable, we can sometimes hold. Um, and if we're below, of course, we'd be considering uh, reducing the number of licenses. But we're always everything we do on an annual basis is driven by those objectives outlined in our herd management plans.
0: Sure. Yeah, and, and and I am aware of that, and that, and and I realize we're not done with our five year plan. So it sounds like you're not ready to 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 say for sure whether those sex ratios have changed. Like, do are you saying we need to go we need to go through the whole plan before we can make a decision on that? Well,
1: you know, it just it depends on the the conversation around change. So with our sex ratio uh, ratios, and in Gunnison, for example, we have three different management units that surround the town of Gunnison. And, um, this year, most of those are still sort of at the top end or exceeding our set, our objective. Okay. And so again, that's because our herds have been performing well over the, gotcha. the previous yep. few years. Um, and so we have the ability to increase licenses to try to achieve those, those objectives, um, within our herd management plan. So, you know, our, our sex ratios do change over time. Um, Sometimes it's the result of a a lower than expected harvest year. Sometimes it's the result of a severe winter. Sometimes it's the result of just an exceptional fawn recruitment year that interjects a bunch of yearlings into the population. And so, you know, it's always changing, but again, at the end of the day, our mandate is to try to hold it at a, a predetermined objective level that's outlined in our herd management plans
0: okay gotcha so so um in your in your three uh, herd management areas that are around gunnison let's ju- let's just pick one of them um is fifty three and fifty four in the same uh herd management or is fifty three not considered part of gunnison
1: uh it is part of my area, but uh unit fifty four is managed as as its own herd so it's a it's a standalone management okay. unit.
0: All right, let's just take a small sample of of just one of them. Has have we ha, have we got any data that shows that that buck to doe ratio regardless of the season dates has it changed significantly in the last 3 years?
1: Um n- other than it's been it has been changing and that it's been increasing. yeah yeah so that's that's a good thing that's a good thing it is exactly exactly we love to see you, you know we love to see our deer herds do well and uh you know we try to celebrate these kinds of years because you know going back to the um you know some of the conversation we'll probably have is related to severe winters and you know gunnison the gunnison basin in particular is prone to severe winters once a decade or so um Mm-hmm. You know that can really knock us back, and you know sometimes it takes quite a few years to recover from those events. So when our deer herds are doing well, um, we've really tried to enjoy them while it lasts because we know we know a winter's coming that's going to knock it back eventually.
0: You're exactly right. I got a deer hunting book here written in 1980 that talks about you got to hunt the Gunnison on a, on the up years because it is prone to winter kill. You know high elevation winter ranges. Um, you know this this is nothing new, and um, you yeah. know that's that's why I. I try to give people a broad context on this that this has been deer management as long as I've been alive and longer you know this is the stuff that managers deal with but as hunters we get narrowly focused on harvest and and things like that and you know a lot of guys are very concerned with the buck to doe ratios uh decreasing with these with these later seasons and 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 we would expect them to we would expect age class to, to slip but as of right now at least in one of the in the herd management areas we can't say that that's happening could be offset by you know, uh, summer precipitation, lighter winters, you know, all that stuff. And that's kind of what's been interesting about Colorado the last year is, you know, we've had a, including this winter that's happening right now. I mean, the fall of 20 and in, in, or 21 into 20, so mild. You know, well, there wasn't a lot of harvest then, and a lot of guys were mad they spent their points. And then, yeah. you know, then this year, you know, we're getting this kind of winter. There's, I guess my point is there's so many other things affecting mule deer besides just hunters that sometimes we forget that and, and, and we press hard on the divisions, you know, to fix things that, <laughs> that really are, are out of their control somewhat, you know. And, 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 and in fact, Brandon, if you figure out how to control these winners, man, you know, let me know, man. We're You're, you're going to be a billionaire, I promise you.
1: Yeah, well, and the the tough part, you know, I've um been in the in the management game for quite a while now and and uh with a lot of emphasis on mule deer because that's my background and that's where where I've spent a lot of my time, but it's challenging in today's hunting culture. Um, you know, there's just there's less and less slack for lack of a better word in the system for accounting for nature and winners. Mm-hmm. You know, we, there's so much hype and so much, so many preference points invested, and so many strategies mm-hmm. on where to go, and you know how to apply, and how many points it takes, and preference point creep, and who gets to hunt, and all of those things, and that's challenging enough in a perfect stable environment of average winners. Mm-hmm. You th- you throw in a severe winner or two that knocks your population back significantly, and like literally the whole the whole castle comes crumbling down um and it's it's just tough it's getting tougher as a manager it's getting tougher as a hunter to plan you know and predict um it's just it's a real challenge these days
0: it is and 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 thank you for for diving into that a little bit that's exactly why I have people like you on the podcast cuz i told you um when we when we first got on as i said before i turned on the record button that you know when when i started um, volunteering at the fishing and game and getting to work with people like you, it completely changed my mindset, you know, and in and, in and, and, and in a way it just got rid of the heavy emotion. Um, and, and it just helped me make better decisions as a hunter. And that's that's what I've tried to do on this podcast. That's why you always hear me say the sky's not falling. And I can say that based on 40 years of mule deer hunting. I've seen this go up and down, and yeah, maybe some long-term trends are down and things like that. But if you're a smart hunter, you 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 can you can work the system, you can you can you can make Good decisions on where to apply, when not to apply, you know, things like that. And, 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 and Brandon, you just hit on that. The emotion can sometimes get so far out of control that, that you're just not making good decisions. So, anyways, um, I thank you on that. The, the, the other thing I know that we were trying to do, um, was minimize the spread of CWD. And that, that was, I guess, baked in with this plan. And, you know, don't, don't quote me too much on that, but, you know, as, as I read articles and listened to discussions and everything back when this family, this plan was being formed, that was in the discussion. Am I correct about that?
1: Yeah. And, um, so can I back up just a minute just to, to hit more point before we'll move on to CWD? Um, I think it's just an important point to sort of to sort of highlight once, once more, and then we can move on. But, you know, the, the, uh, going back to sex ratio objectives, um, I think again, the, some of the, the greatest concern from, from big buck hunters in particular, it's, it's, uh, it's more the, the, um, age classes that are present within that buck to doe ratio. Sure. Right. So sure. in in Colorado if we're and this is you know this is how we do it across the state a management by objective type uh program you know we manage for that sex ratio and you know hunters um lots of hunters these days especially you know if you're going on a once in a lifetime or a once in a decade or a once in 30 year kind of mule deer hunt you know your expectations are high and uh you'd like to see mature bucks and I just wanted to highlight this because we talk about it a lot and it's important to point out how challenging it's becoming to maintain those older age class bucks on the landscape. Um, and you, you probably have talked about this in your podcast and, and probably there'll be a lot more podcasts on the subject, but you know, the technological advances, the loss of habitat, the, the winters, the travel management issues and access, um, there's so many things baked into what goes on on an annual basis that influences the number of mature bucks you see on the landscape. They got it tough out there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think collectively hunters, um, and I'm one of them, you know, we gotta keep thinking about, you know, a balance between all of these things that make us better hunters and more successful hunters and what it is exactly we're interested in seeing on the landscape because, Uh, some things are a lot easier to do than others um, in terms of of bringing those two things together. Um, So again, there's, there's a little bit of uh, food for thought maybe, but we can move on to CWD. If no, th- right.
0: those are, those are great points. And, you know, being, being the owner of one of the biggest Western hunting forums out there, I get to see the advancement of gear firsthand and, and I, and I, and I'm not picking on any certain crowd, but we are better hunters now than we used to be because of our gear, because of our ability to share information. You know, even this podcast is going to make people better hunters. And, and, and so I'm with Brandon on that. That's, that's another, I don't want to call it a nail in the coffin. I don't, but it's one more thing we have to think about in, in managing mule deer and and uh and and i'm glad you brought that up brandon because that that is huge that can be as important as you know anything else we're talking about you know weather and dates and all that other stuff
1: yeah no i I appreciate it and you i mean you know what it takes all these years watching deer um what it takes to to get to be four or five or six or eight years old as a mule deer buck it's a special animal Mm -hmm. and you know not all of them have big antlers either so the ones that get old and get big you know, they're they're uh, special critters and, and they're they're hard to uh to grow in mass, you know, for a lot of different reasons. So we'll
0: You're keep right. working I, on I, I think kind of what maybe some of the the, the grumble that I hear and, and maybe even I felt myself and, and, and why I wanted to talk about this is I'll tell you what, ninety-nine to two thousand and five was amazing watching and, and I say it was the limited licenses. I know we we had some favorable weather in there as well, but just watching the buck to doe ratios just explode in Colorado um, under that that initial limited license structure. and We'll talk about this towards the end of the podcast. Some would argue it, it, it the pendulum swung too far. We we created we created too many and in uh, over objective on sex ratios, and, and we paid the price in the hard winners. You know we can talk about all that. But I think some of us are still holding on to the dream, you know, like, wow, I, I remember going to basins in the late nineties and, well, there's three bucks in here. And then five years later, there's 30 bucks. I mean, and, and four of them are are gaggers. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. And I, and, you know, and, and if there's one thing I've learned about deer is they're cyclical, you know, all good things come to an end, but I think some of us are still hanging on to that a little bit.
1: Well and I yeah and I hear you and I was I was in the middle of that too and and um you know we we certainly had some real favorable years of recruitment and population growth and the other the other big thing that was so different then and it's it's almost um it's almost apples to automobiles you know to think about those days versus now I mean in in the Gunnison basin as an example everything was secret mm-hmm. you know nothing yep. nothing was known uh you had to still work to find country and, and uh the hot the mule there secret spots were were all closely guarded and um you know it just wasn't well known what was going on. And of course that was across western Colorado, but um all of those things kind of came together for you know the folks that were paying attention and were hunting, still hunting at that time. Um, you know, it was it was a phenomenon. Everything just came together perfectly. Uh to create some really amazing hunts and some really big deer. And then, you know, fast forward almost 25 years, 20 years later, it's just a, uh, like we just touched on a minute ago, it's just a completely different landscape where everyone knows where to go. Everyone has the technology. Everyone knows where the premier units are. It's just, again, it's just so challenging to maintain and grow uh you know, large numbers of mature bucks because they're so heavily hunted, um, by really good hunters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's a whole different landscape, uh, to manage in. And it's been really interesting to watch the evolution over time.
0: Yep. You make some great points there. It's not just the technology of our equipment. It's the technology of knowledge. It's so much easier to find. I mean, I remember back in the, you know, 80s, you know, writing to guys like you on a, you know, get out my pen and write in cursive and stick a stamp on the on the envelope and, you know, send it to the biologist and then, you know, wait three weeks and then he would send you back something, you know, <laughs> where now, oh, yeah. I, man, I can get all that on Google, you know, in a shorter amount of time it took to do this podcast, you know.
1: That's right. It's just very good. We're very good at, at exploiting uh, everything we can to to be better hunters and uh, collect more information quickly. And so it's, it's just different. And, you know, that's, I, I like to bring this up and talk about it because from a manager's perspective, you know, trying to maintain uh, mature bucks in a mule deer population is not even close to the same as it was 20 years ago um, for a lot of different reasons. And so that, that impacts what hunters see on the landscape and and the the subsequent discussions that come after hunting seasons are over um and we just need to keep having them and recognizing you know how how one thing affects another beyond just license allocation because that's where we tend to focus and that's just part of the that's just part of the overall um complex issue
0: you are right and i'm glad you brought that up Okay, so, on to the CWD. I know that yeah, was yeah. part of the discussion in the management plan that uh, harvesting older age bucks should help prevent uh, the spread of CWD. I know it's only been three years into it, but are we making any inroads?
1: So you know, like probably with most Western states, there's a long history to chronic wasting disease in Colorado, and you know, in the last when the last season structure was set. Um, and I can't recall all the conversations off the top of my head. I'm I'm sure there was some chronic wasting disease conversations that were baked in, uh, to the, to the decisions that were made when establishing the season structure. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, this season structure we're currently operating in, uh, does provide some management flexibility and opportunity to address chronic wasting disease. Um, you know, in, in, Gunnison, we tested, we did. We had mandatory testing for chronic wasting disease, I think it was back in 2005. You know, there was a lot of interest in chronic wasting disease at the end of the 90s into the early 2000s. Certainly we determined that we needed to do some, some bolstered monitoring that was just going to help us um, look, look at prevalence and distribution around the state. So we did some pretty good mandatory testing there around 05 or so. Um, you know, and then after a while, hunter, hunter interest sort of waned to some extent, and we, we'd gotten a, a pretty good pulse on, uh, current distribution and prevalence of CWD in different parts of the state. And then, uh, you know, more recently we started exploring how to, to sort of increase our management attention to chronic wasting disease because indications were that prevalence was jumping in different places to a really undesirable and concerning level. And so we've done quite a few more rounds of mandatory testing for CWD in different parts of the state. Um, And I believe it was 2018 or so, uh, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission adopted a CWD response plan for Colorado, which, you know, for folks that haven't looked at that, I would, I would really, it's, it's not that long. It's not, it's pretty easy reading, and I'm sure it's available online on our website. So I would check it out. It's, I think it's called the Chronic Wasting Disease Response Plan. And there's some real key uh, bullets in there, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, when, when we start to see or when we document a certain prevalence level, um, there's a point there at which, uh, you know, CWD prevalence is likely to increase much more rapidly. And so I believe that's at at a 5% prevalence rate, and we're basing that on adult bucks uh, because adult bucks, I'm sure most folks are are generally aware uh, that bucks are two times uh, more susceptible to chronic wasting disease or show generally two times the prevalence that does do. Uh, Mature bucks tend to have pretty high prevalence rates, all those sorts of things, so when, when we document a 5% prevalence rate in our adult bucks within a herd management unit, that is, uh, should trigger some additional discussion and, and uh, management uh, deliberation on, on how to slow that prevalence down. Uh, because at the 5% rate, there seems to be some sort of inflection point where suddenly prevalence increases much more rapidly. And that's why 5% is so important in a, in a percentage that we talk about uh, a lot in our management. And so um, I'll, just, I'll just be real here for a second. We all know that the to improve our chronic wasting s- disease situation or to help mitigate for those higher or increasing prevalence rates, uh, the answer is to kill more bucks, have lower deer densities, and target... Uh, older age class bucks, which everyone recognizes, is contrary to the desires of many mule deer hunters uh, that want to see more deer, more bucks, and older age bucks. And so again, you know, to talk about complexity and a challenge, that is that is definitely one. And you know, in, in my world, it hasn't really. Um, I haven't had to address it wholeheartedly yet because knock on wood, we haven't had a positive chronic wasting disease case in the Gunnison Basin. Uh, although it's knocking at our door from adjacent game management units. Um, but we do have uh, one of my mule deer herds uh, that has, I believe a 9% prevalence rate. And so we have implemented some management prescriptions to try to address that. Um, and it's a challenge. It's a, a very large challenge. And I think that um, most wildlife managers in parks and wildlife understand, you know, the the, uh, the opposing sentiment from mule deer hunters and the concerns from mule deer hunters. It's just, you know, trying to, uh, you know, use the best available science and, you know, implement responsible management so that the con- the long-term conservation of these deer herds is uh, being taken into consideration. And, and uh, you know, we'll see how it goes over time. I think now we're, we're sort of in a five year rotational mandatory testing program. Um, so we're gonna start looking at the chronic wasting disease prevalence and all these different herds on a more regular and repeat- repeatable basis. Uh, if we change our management based on that prevalence, you know, we'll, we'll evaluate how prevalence does or doesn't change over time in relation to management and then readjust uh, after the next um, monitoring period. So it's a, that's probably more than, than you wanted to hear, but uh, you know, it's well, just a very complex uh, management challenge that we're facing and other Western states are, are facing as well.
0: No, no. And that is what I wanted to hear. Um, is right. kind of the background on that and, and how the decisions were made. Uh, the reason for the question is because I think, as, as mule deer hunters, we're all for it if it works. And so mm-hmm. that was why I wanted to to see if there's any data yet that says, yeah, as our buck to doe ratio is dropping, and and I realize it's not in Gunnison because you're not in the CWD area, as these buck to doe ratios are dropping, um, is the prevalence of CWD dropping? Because if it's not, then you know we're, we're, are we doing the right thing by harvesting our, our bucks to a point where we drop our our age class because it, it, because if we're not well let's try something else that that's what i was hoping to extract out of that and maybe three years into the plan isn't isn't enough to know but i think there's just yeah, go ahead sure no and
1: and thanks for that robbie that's um it's a great comment and a great concern and i appreciate it because and that's you know that's essentially what we're always trying to do—sort of an adaptive management uh, framework where we can adjust based on what we're learning over time. I think for me, you know, in another in another few years, I could probably give you more information on how we're looking. Um, although we might have to wait until our next mandatory um, testing year for the for the management unit in my area. You know, the northwest part of the state. Um, they have some, some exceptionally high prevalence rates in some of their mule deer herds, you know, in, in excess of 20%. Yep. Uh, so we haven't even seen anything like that down here yet. So I think that over time we'll be able to learn from the big game managers in that part of the state um, as they continue to do testing and prescribe different management uh to their deer herds. Um, So it's going to, it's going to take a little bit of time. And again, in a best case scenario, we do mandatory testing, we get our prevalence rates. And if we're at a point where we have to change management, we change management right then for the next year, We, we let that five years of management ride, and then we retest to look at the prevalence after five years. And it's hard to get things aligned that perfectly to where you sort of have that before and after yeah study essentially yeah. Um, but you know we still have some of the best folks in the country looking at CWD um, and I'm sure that we're gonna we're gonna take advantage of whatever data and information we have in hand to
0: try and make those informed decisions All right well you got a date. Two years. I'm going to call you up. We'll, we'll see where we're <laughs> at. If, and if you and if any of that stuff come down comes down the pipe in the meantime, you know, let me know because I just know that's something that hunters are interested in. We are all about the conservation of our species. If people that hadn't gone before us in wildlife management had not um, conserved the species, you and I wouldn't have this conversation right now. I. Um, yeah. But there's just many of us that are just wondering, like, is this the right path to go? And and if it's too soon to t- tell now, that's fine. Let's uh, let's follow up in in time. Uh, okay. So moving on here, um, uh, back, back to the kind of pre 2007 winter, you know, I talked about how good the buck to doe ratios and the size of bucks and, you know, all the things that big buck hunters like to see, um, not only in the Gunnison basin, but throughout the Western slope of Colorado, uh, 2006 was just epic year for, for, for big bucks. And just, and, and I'm talking about seeing them, you know, from, from the scouting season and everything, it was just clear that something had, had drastically changed. And if Brandon, if I remember right, some of the uh, the sex ratios in the Gunnison were over 60 bucks per hundred does. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I know. That's correct. Yeah. And, they, were, and, they, were, they were very high. Oh, it was just unreal. And and we got a big snowstorm on second season uh, that year. I don't know if you remember that. And um, it The the articles that were cut and the little newspapers and, you know, the stuff that was on the internet was was using phrases like buck hunting not seen since the 60s and, you know, things like that because we, we, you know, we took that that incredibly high buck to doe ratio. We had a lot of older age class animals in it. We had been managing uh, under limited license and structure very conservatively, especially in the Gunnison Basin. Correct me if I'm I'm wrong on any of this. And then we combine that with just some great second season weather. And it was just mind blowing of, of, of what was out there. Well, then we roll into the winter of 2007 and eight, which was one of the worst winners i remember for the gunnison basin um it, you know I, I people were sending me pictures of of four and five foot sagebrush that wasn't even visible anymore it just was white it was gone um you know clear down to, to, to blue mesa reservoir you know where deer can usually escape and it, there was it was just it looked like the opening scene of 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 Star Wars Part 2 on that planet uh, when Luke Skywalker cuts open the beast and gets inside of him. I mean it was unreal the 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 winner that 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 happened in the Gunnison and um and so the, then the next year um from what I remember Brandon um Colorado took a really hard assessment of how they were managing deer especially in the Gunnison and that we may have been even over-managing them, like those sex, th- those high sex ratios were no longer desirable. I'll let you take it from here, but that, that's kind of how I remember it.
1: Yeah, and that's all pretty close. Um, so in, just to rewind a little bit further back to 1999, when we went totally limited for mule deer licenses in Colorado, there was um, allowed local discretion. And so local communities, local areas, local managers could sort of make those initial license uh, allocations uh, based on local conditions. And in Gunnison, one of the reasons why what people saw between, you know, 03 to 06 uh, was because we, um, and I wasn't quite here in a professional capacity yet, um, but uh, the local communities in, in collaboration with the Division of Wildlife uh, decided to cut buck licenses by 90% from the historic over-the-counter participation average. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just an incredibly large license reduction paired with all those favorable years. Um, and I wish I had it'd be neat if we had radio-collared animals at that time just to see what the survival rates and everything were. But you know, our deer herds exploded. There was essentially no hunting pressure. And you know, bucks quickly grew to be four to eight years old. Um, so it it was, it was a a sight to see and it was all secret. So whoever was here was here and they were, they were regaling in the glory of what they were seeing. Um, you know, the, the, um, the, the herd management plans, I got to Gunnison in 04 professionally. And at that time I was the big game biologist. Um, and so our, our buck to doe ratios were 40 to 45 to 100. And we also had population objectives established. And, um, you know, when I got to Gunnison, we were already running way behind, you know, and and trying to catch an increasing deer herd is it's tough, you know, because you have to go. I, I inherited a 90% license reduction and everybody was loving it, at least the folks that had a tag in their pocket. And, um, you know, then here I come and the herd's increasing and it was like, we got to start increasing tags and all of those license increases were real heavily scrutinized and discussed and debated. Um, and just prior to the 07, 08 winter, I, we were just about there. We were just about to the point where we had turned the sex ratio Uh, We were kind of stifling population growth and we had the trajectory of the population going back in the direction of the actual herd management plan objectives. Um, And then 0708 came and and blew up the whole program. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, you know, a one in a hundred year kind of event. The likes that have never been really recorded. We've had some good winters in Gunnison, but nothing on paper like that. Um, good as in bad winters. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Bad, (laughs) bad, bad, heavy snow, cold winters. Mm Um, 07, 08, we had over a hundred inches of snow in town. Um, everybody was grumpy. There was nowhere to move snow anymore. Um, but you know, the outlying areas and our, our severe winter ranges, what really got us, um, Cause I believe it was a pretty mild fall that year. It was. We didn't have, yeah. yeah. We didn't have a lot of big snow or cold, but then I think it was around the first week of December, we got like a 20 inch dump that was really, really wet, heavy snow. And it essentially covered the entire landscape. And then it got 20 below or whatever it did. And that initial crust had covered everything And then it froze and it never thawed until May. And on top of that crust, we had snowstorm after snowstorm after snowstorm after snowstorm paired with below average temperatures. And it was just, you know, the apocalyptic winter from a big game standpoint. And, you know, again, philosophically, we can talk all day long. I mean, big game population cycle, they die. Nature is rough and cruel and ugly sometimes, but... You know, when you start to throw in the socio-political um, factors into the equation, and, and again, going back to that slack in the system, there's there's just less appetite to see mass starvation across the landscape.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, in, in my time, I went to college in Gunnison, and so I was here in the mid-90s. And so at this point, I've been a part of, uh, let's see, two, two different winter feeding programs. One in 96, 97, uh, the 07, 08, and then we did another baiting operation in sixteen, seventeen. 17. Um, so I've been a part of several of these, and of course, they go back to before my time. Um, and so it's a topic that's talked about a lot uh, in our local communities, and, you know, there's there's pros and cons to it, Um You know, it's certainly not a natural situation, but nothing in 2023 Colorado is a natural situation anymore with our population, human population growth and development and our impacts on the landscape. And so, yeah, the, the winner of 0708 was the, the be all end all and, and, uh, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that I'm gone here before we see the next one.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it it was bad and 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 it and it, cha- it changed everything. Um and uh so when uh but what it was amazing to me was as bad as it got and as 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 my, many deer as we lost. and This is one of my later questions in here. And I know hunters consider a herd recovered differently than a biologist does. But I felt like it recovered at some point. And you know, it took years. It, you know, it, it um what oh eight was the spring of that. And you know, we I avoided Gunnison Basin and all that country around there. But by you know, twelve thirteen, I know the number the sex ratios never got back to that, and I think that was on purpose. Like you you, you guys were 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 not desiring to have the sex ratios that high but but the deer herd was recovering but but from a biologist standpoint did it recover
1: yeah, that's a good question um you know I think uh there's there's two camps of hunters out there the the one the first camp is those that were around and hunted and saw what was going on before the 0708 winter mm-hmm. and there's there's a group of folks that came after that so they never really saw that and So I bring that up because people's bars are different in terms of what they perceive as recovery. Yep. If if recovery looks like 2005 in the Gunnison Basin during third rifle season, um, we're never going to recover potentially, even though our our deer herds right now are in great shape. But again, it depends on where people put their bar in terms of that recovery metric, you know, from a biologist standpoint um, and honestly based on the lessons learned from 07 08 and i think a lot of folks in the mule deer hunting community would agree with this you know we waste wasted and i don't use that term loosely because i don't want to 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 seem offensive with that term but we lost a tremendous number of deer that year that could have gone home with hunters and you know that's fine um You know, we don't have to send every deer home with hunters either, but there's a balance there that I think is a legitimate conversation as well as a legitimate conversation about what the habitat carrying capacity is on our severe winter ranges and how that relates to our populations and sort of that long-term sustainability of those severe winter ranges because that is what's going to carry us for generations. Um, So all of those conversations continue to happen. Uh, but in 2013, I believe it was, um, we were getting close to being due for a, a revised uh, mule deer herd management plans in Gunnison anyway. And so we we took them on and we rewrote the, the management plans. And when we did that, um, and that's a public process that we engage with our communities on and um, have a lot of discussions during, we we finally... Determined that we would reduce the buck to doe ratios slightly, so we went from objectives of forty to forty-five per one hundred to thirty-five to forty per one hundred, and we also established um, somewhat smaller, um, I think, on the order of ten to fifteen percent smaller population objectives. Again, just trying to account for for those kinds of winners, and you know, if you managed, if you manage for an 07, 08 winner, you would be you know, maintaining a population of a thousand deer, and it would just be very, very small because that's really what's available during severe winters here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we try not to to be that extreme. We know those are coming, so people need to be ready for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we were trying to 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 set objectives that were more realistically based on a more average or slightly above average kind of winter, you know, because that is where our bottleneck is in, in this country. And so, you know, again, I, we have, we have herd management plan revisions coming up here shortly for deer. And I know these conversations will be had again, uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it is important that we consider, you know, habitat carrying capacity, um, you know, and how that, that influences where we set population objectives. Um, and so those discussions are pending, but in 2013, we changed those management objectives. And so that's where we're, we've are we been living uh, for the past 10 years uh, in terms of what objectives we're shooting for. So I, I can tell you that we have had some incredible deer years here, um, you know, and and you can look at it from whatever, through whatever lens you like. Mature buck harvest, fawn recruitment, fawn dough ratios entering the, the winter adult. You know, doe survival rates, um, animals distributing a little bit more across the landscapes into their former haunts, all those sorts of things. um, I would say that we're doing really well and we've been we've been heading in a really good direction and staying in a really good direction. So in terms of are we recovered? um, You know, I would argue if we're over our population objectives and over our sex ratio objectives and we're chasing a growing deer herd. We're probably in pretty good shape.
0: That is good to hear. And 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 even before you said that, you heard me say it. As far as I was concerned, you know, we we, we were recovered, and it was encouraging to me to go from such a Devastating winter, because of course the emotion was running wild then too. You know the the deer are going to go extinct in the Gunnison Basin. You know when we have winter kill like that, but they slowly got back on their feet and they got back up and got going again. And I was surprised. You know I bought into a little bit of that sky is falling stuff, and that's why that's becoming a, a well known phrase on this podcast. And, and because it's you know forty years of my deer hunting that yeah I can choose to say the sky is falling and I'm going to hunt just like the sky is falling, or I can you know look for the right spots and say well hey you know this is deer deer are cyclical they always have been and um and 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 that's why getting good knowledge in your head to make good decisions is so important to me uh, because they're going to continue to be cyclical am i wrong brandon
1: no i mean especially i think in places that are you know climate driven you know whether it's extreme droughts or extreme winters they certainly are cyclical and um you know I guess the, the the good news is that from a management standpoint in Colorado, I mean, we account for that. Mm-hmm. You know, we know, we know that when these cycles happen, that we have the limited licensing tools to adjust for it. And um, again, we're always striving for our, uh, you know, our herd management plan objectives. So, you know, we're never gonna be in a situation where we are driving our deer herds into extinction because of license allocation. You know, at the end of the day, again, our man- our mandate is to achieve our management plan objectives. And you know, those, we can discuss and debate those all we want, but you know, deer are incredibly, um, uh, they're, they're well evolved for these climatic variations and the strong survive, and then they can recover you know, in, in places in these extreme climates, it you know, sometimes they don't recover as quickly as we would like them to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that gets us into more of a global habitat conservation conversation that I think sometimes we miss when we start arguing over license allocation, you know,
0: um, I agree. How do
1: we, how do we protect mule deer winter range so that we, you know, have some resiliency um, during these severe winters. How do we protect or enhance water sources in drier climates? Um, you know, how do we provide security areas for mule deer so that they can thrive and uh, meet all their annual needs? You know, there's there's a, a grander conversation that I think is becoming more urgent in the face of human population increase, um, especially in the West. You know, I'm sure you see it in Idaho. Colorado has exploded, and there's there's seemingly no end in sight. Um, you know, it's, it's, this is a habitat conversation and, uh, we'll keep having those with, with anybody and everybody that wants to listen and and get involved.
0: And I do. And I'm with you. The, 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 the best money to spend is on habitat, whether it's figurative money or real money. That's the long game for us is conserving habitat, improving habitat, uh, owning the habitat, keeping it in the public trust. Um, and, and those are the conversations I was trying to have on this podcast. Uh, we attended mule deer days just a few weeks ago in Rock Springs, Wyoming, and, uh, some of the data on, um, migration routes and protecting them and oh that is just so important because when you lose those uh, we can we can close the deer season and it ain't going to make a difference something else is driving that population and and so as hunters yeah a lot of times it's it's just about buck harvest doe harvest you know we're shooting too many you know things like that but there's there's way bigger things uh happening than just that and uh, and and then the same with predators too is is sometimes throwing money at predators doesn't go as far as putting money into habitat. And, you know, that's a whole nother podcast, you know, that could start a war right there. And especially with with what you guys are going to go into with wolves over the next, uh, and I've been living with wolves for 20 years here, and I'll say it again, the sky ain't falling. Um, And, um, you know, it's challenging. There's there's things that that, that, that are going to change, but the long game, and I, I think I'm Backing up on what you just said, Brandon, the long game is in habitat uh, conservation, improvement, all of those things. If we have that, the deer know how to survive. If we don't have that, there's nothing we can do for them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Awesome. Um okay uh so I think we covered everything on there you did uh, mention the license reductions in the northwest region uh, I guess I'd be north of I70 up to the Wyoming border so if anybody's going to be hunting up there you know the, the Colorado was uh grand enough to get that information out before the deadline which I think is April 4th next Tuesday um and uh so you know keep that in mind uh, uh Brandon is it too soon to tell if you're going to have any license reductions in the Gunnison units
1: It it is a little early to tell. Um, You may or may not know, Robbie. Our our final license recommendations um, or our draft license license recommendations get um, vetted by our our senior staff and our leadership around mid-April, and then the Parks and Wildlife Commission approves final license numbers at the May meeting. And the May meeting is going to be interesting this year because there's going to be a really uh, heavy agenda that includes. Uh, a lot of wolf topics as well as big game issues. So it's, it's going to be a busy one, but we're still sort of deliberating, you know, I mean, obviously we're in certain parts of the, of the region we're we're experiencing an above average winter. So we're trying to take that into account. Um, But we haven't fully fleshed out our license recommendations, but I think generally speaking, you know, if any license reductions were to happen, they certainly wouldn't be to the level that's being experienced in the Northwest part of the state right now based on different winter conditions and you know and there's places in the gunnison basin we're probably going to i would expect we we experience higher than average um, fawn mortality for example so this winter is going to get us on on a few fronts but we'll plan for that or do the best to plan for it and and keep moving forward and regroup next year um, when we see what the actual impact of this winter is going to be the neat the neat thing in gunnison that we have going these days is um we have a full-blown mule deer survival uh, project going. And that was one positive thing that came out of the 0708 winter was in the winter of 08-09, I was able to start a full-blown uh, survival monitoring project and getting a bunch of does and fawns radio-collared and on the air. And that project continues. So if we do experience these, these bigger winters or even during winters like this one, that are above average, we have radio caller information to help drive conversations, which is a lot, uh, lot easier and more beneficial uh, than just speculation on all fronts.
0: Oh so. yeah. We, especially when you're under a limited license structure, like you are, you can make decisions right away that some of the other States, um, I love Idaho. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes we're a little bit behind the the curve on some of our survivability. We're getting better too, but, but, you know, yep. sometimes it's a couple of years later, we look back and go, whoa, that, that was worse than we thought. And, you know, Idaho has a completely different management. We are not under limited licenses. A lot of times there's not a lot they can do even when they know about it. Um, be, because all we're dealing with is season dates, you know, where you, you you can take a unit and say hey we're we're down 50% in deer we offer 150 licenses in this unit let's let's do something about that similar to Nevada so so yeah you're you're well equipped to handle it and you probably should be i think the colorado uh human population is what 4.5 million is that correct
1: oh man we're we're
0: pushing 6 million are you really wow wow that is just incredible yeah, yeah i remember what it was in the, the, the next, fours
1: yeah in the in the next 30 to 40 years the projections are they're not going down. So, yeah, Colorado is really, really a busy place these days. And, you know, it's not just the development and where people live. You know, everybody wants to be outside. And so, you know, like like a lot of Western states, I'm sure we're dealing with lots of issues on people wanting to do everything everywhere all the time. And how do you how do you fit wildlife into that mix? So
0: we'll keep working on that. Well, Brandon, I sure appreciate you taking us through all of this. For all our listeners, I hope this gave you a a little peek into the real world of what our wildlife managers are dealing with. It's not as cut and dried as sometimes I even make it. Um, They they have to manage wildlife. They have to manage people, the politics, everything. And uh, it is not an easy job to do. And the best thing that we can do is... Get educated on this stuff. Uh, support them. You know, hug your local biologist. Uh, but as as you can see brandon's a hunter too he's he's vested in this and many of the biologists i talk to around the west are also hunters and you know they're not a lot of times there's a stereotype you know they don't care it's just about the science they're a bunch of pencil pushers that's not what i have found um i find talking to many of these biologists a deep love for our wildlife that's why they got into the career that they're in and so by us learning more about what they do we're we're better able to help them make decisions for our future and our, and our wildlife. And, uh, you know, if we're going to pass this on to the next generation, this is where the rubber meets the road. So I, I encourage you to, to attend the meetings, um, you know, listen more than you talk, all of those things. And, and, and you might also become a better hunter in the process. So Brandon, unless you've got anything else, we sure appreciate your time today.
1: Thank you, Robbie. No, again, I appreciate the invite and, uh, Maybe we can visit more on other topics down the road.
0: The door is always open and you got my email.
1: Sounds perfect.
0: Okay. Thank you, Brandon.